we have a cultural problem when we think about sound. Like we think about sound culturally um, as music and music is amazing. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing that humans can create and um, experience. But the reality is, is that most of the sonic world is not music. Um, and what I wanted to do was take that, all of those other things and start to celebrate those. Hello everyone, Kirk Hamilton here, and I have a special surprise for you all in this off week, a bonus episode that is not a musical analysis like we usually do, but rather a conversation with an exceptional sound designer and a fellow podcaster, Mr. Dallas Taylor. Dallas is, among other things, host of the fabulous podcast 20,000 Hertz, which is a podcast all about sound. They talk about music, they talk about sound effects that you've heard, they trace sounds through the ages. It's an amazing show. If you like strong songs, you would definitely like 20,000 Hertz. It's a wonderfully produced show, very informative. They've done episodes on everything from the 808 to the theme music from The Price is Right to the virtual choir to the sound effects from Star Wars, all kinds of other things. There's I have more episodes than I've even listened to, but I love the show. And if you like strong songs, you would like this show too. And that's why I was so excited to have Dallas come on the show. So as you all probably know, Strong Songs is a totally listener-supported show. We have a Patreon, and that's the only way that I make money from the show. And I set goals on that Patreon that every so often, you know, every certain threshold of patrons that we get, I will make a bonus episode. I haven't done one in a little while. It's kind of slowed down by the pandemic uh, with some that I wanted to do that involved people coming over to my home studio to record. But I have wanted to have Dallas on for a little while. He, of course, has his own incredible recording studio that he records out of. So we got together, we set up a Zoom call and we sat down to talk. Before we get going, I just want to say thank you to all of my Patreon patrons, everybody who's back to the show. You make this kind of bonus episode possible. You make it possible for me to dedicate the kind of time to this show that I really want to and that lets me make fun extra stuff like this. I had a great time in this conversation. We kind of talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about sound design. We talked about some episodes of 20,000 Hertz, about the history of the 808. We talked about Hamilton. They did an episode of 20,000 Hertz on Hamilton that I didn't even know about, but that sounds fascinating. So we talked about the sound design of that show. We basically just nerded out about Hamilton for a little while because it turns out Dallas is a big Hamilton nerd too. And I'll just mention a sort of light spoiler warning. I know we all know what happened to Alexander Hamilton, but we do talk about the end of the musical and have some excerpts from sort of climactic moments near the end of the musical. So if you get to sort of the middle of the Hamilton discussion and you want to skip that, you can just skip to around 51 minutes and we pick it up with a new topic there. We also talk quite a bit about mastering, about the loudness wars. There's a couple of great 20,000 Hertz episodes about that that I highly recommend listening to, especially given how many people write in to ask me about mastering. If you really want to know about mastering, go listen to those episodes. But we do talk about that, which was pretty cool, and just a bunch about music, about what sounds good, about how sound works, and a lot more. I hope that you all enjoy it. So without further ado, Mr. Dallas Taylor. Hello, Dallas. Welcome to Strong Songs. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of your show as well. I feel like there's a sort of a, a similarity in some ways to the way that you make your show, and I really like listening to it. It uh, it also sounds very good, and I like podcasts that sound good. It's just everything sounds very nice, which is... A... Well, we know this is going to be good because we have mutual fandom back and forth. Right, right. So I'm so excited about this. We're off to a great start. This is perfect. What, in your opinion, is the most important thing for a good recording? What is the most important thing to make a recording sound good? <laughs> People performing it well. That mm, would be my okay. start. Um, I, yeah. it's, it's something that I think about a lot um, because we can yeah. get, there's definitely like the details of um, execution of, of the technical things. But one thing I think about with a, a lot of these um, 
technical aspects is that those are like our tools and our paint brushes and our paint. Uh, but once you're actually creating all of those things kind of just become transparent. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm thinking about like Michelangelo painting or something, I don't think that he'd be consciously aware of the paintbrush, but he's, but he's really thinking about that, that end goal. And so when I think about mm-hmm. like, what's the best thing for recording, it's preparation practice and then uh, not having to uh, kind of do everything in post uh, where you lose a lot of humanity. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I've been thinking about that a lot as I've just been doing a lot of writing and playing. And I think a lot of musicians are playing by themselves right now. Mm -hmm. And so then you record yourself and, you know, you can get it as good as you can get it, but it doesn't have the same quality to the way that you would play it in the room with other people. Like even the existence of other people in the room with you can kind of change the nature of the recording and thus the nature of the mm-hmm. recorded sound. And it is some, it's just something that I notice as I do more stuff on my own and sort of long for the days when I could be in a room with other musicians <laughs> and be playing with them. It's an important concept because I record my voice a lot just for the podcast mm-hmm. and then, or, or like record sound effects and, and all of that. But really understanding what the end goal is, um, it may seem simple even recording a voice for a podcast um, but I really have to be in the right headspace like if I'm oh, just yeah. have a script and I'm trying to knock it out and get get on with my day inevitably that always comes back to haunt me because I'm not in the moment and I'm not really understanding that I'm you know communicating with another person and that goes mm-hmm. for music as well there's this precious headspace that you can be in as a performer um, where you're really fully engaged with the content that you're either performing musically or what you're speaking with. And that's the magic Mm -hmm. moment. So finding those moments where you're fully like mentally engaged in what exactly you're trying to say, and there's no no other distraction. That's number one. And then everything else comes behind it. I totally agree. I recently did an episode on Nina Simone's live recording of Sinner Man and that recording, because she's on stage in front of people, there's just something to it. I think like live recordings don't always have the cleanest sound compared to, you know, a really controlled studio environment, but they have that other thing that really matters. Oh, Sinner Man, where you gonna run to? Sinner Man, where you gonna run to? And yeah, man, making a podcast has given me a new appreciation for voice actors and for their craft, just for how doing voiceover over and over again and how you can kind of get better at it. You have really good delivery, I have to say. Don't listen to the early episodes. So as long as we can agree. (laughs) No, they're fine, too. It's just a lot of this is a prog. uh, a process of learning what my voice is because usually early on I'm just yeah. trying to mimic my favorite podcasters and mm. then I do a very poor mimic and then a year later I'm like oh wow I have my own voice characteristics and maybe I should utilize those mm-hmm. uh, but yeah speaking to the the performance aspect I think of like Whitney Houston singing the um, the Star Spangled Banner sure it's just one of the greatest vocal performances in all of history and it's like mm-hmm. on the biggest stage possible um, and I wonder, I mean, she, she was at the height of her career, but I just wonder if she was able to do that privately. Yeah, that performance has, it's kind of another example of that special energy. Like her performance on I Will Always Love You in the studio is crazy. Like it's technically amazing. And I'm sure there were people in the room listening to her sing, like she did have an audience for it, but it's a 
kind of a more intimate. It's just a different energy. Totally. I guess. It's not necessarily not as good. But anyways, so I want to hear a little bit about your background and just sort of who you are. Or can you tell listeners who you are? Where, where do you come from? What's your background in audio? Sure. So I'm a sound designer, uh, which means that what I'm doing professionally uh, during the podcast and kind of before it is I build out soundtracks and sound design for primarily advertisements, trailers, and um, commercials and promos and documentaries mm-hmm. and animation and things like that. And so you might think, huh, trailer, sound design. Is there sound design and trailers? Well, with trailers, like we're in a little bit of a cliche moment, but to get to the most <laughs> uh, straight to like the sound design point, um, all of these like like all these booms and hits and scrapes mm-hmm. and uh, all of these things are manufactured to try to get people to elicit uh, an emotion and uh, lots of fear emotions and low booms and hits and scrapes and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, so, um, I, I own a, a sound design studio called DeFacto Sound and that's what I've done for the past over 10 years before that worked in television for Discovery, uh, channel and NBC and Fox and G4 before Discovery. Now, uh, nowadays, as far as the business is concerned, uh, most of what we do are, um, trailers for HBO, Netflix, Discovery, A&E, all those kind of uh, networks. Uh, we also do like big car commercials. So if you hear like this, you know, crazy engine roar and stuff happening, mm-hmm. like that's all added later um, in a in kind of our phase. And then we also have, um, we do like sneaker commercials and really stylized things. But we do big documentaries that have been in Sundance and we've done... Um, uh, we do lots of animation and really anything nice. that's picture wise that needs really killer sound with it. Um, that's what we do. Uh, but out of that, over the course of, uh, I think it took seven years, we started to do our own personal project. And that was, uh, when I wanted to really start telling the stories about sounds because we have a cultural problem when we think about sound, like we think about sound culturally um, as music and music is amazing. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing that humans can create and, um, experience. But the reality is, is that most of the sonic world is not music. Um, and what I wanted to do was take that, all of those other things and start to celebrate those. Sometimes we do mm. cover music things, but 20,000 Hertz is all about, um, kind of, uh, the, the, the log line is a lovingly crafted podcast, uh, revealing the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interest, interesting sounds. And, uh, and through that process, maybe like one out of 10 or so, we do a music one. Lately, we've done a lot of music ones because obviously that's one of the most interesting and uh, recognizable. But, uh, but we've done ev- everything from like little sonic logos to brain science um, to all kinds of stuff. And so that was nice. the natural, kind of born out of the studio to do a personal project. And then now it's, it's like a mission of cultural um, change and, and really becoming conscious of our sense of hearing like we do our other senses. Do you find that as a sound designer, you're not able to listen to a trailer without hearing, you know, all of the stock sounds people are using or the not like getting fascinated by how do they get that water uh, drip effect? Do you oh, find yeah. that it's kind of ruined you for that kind of thing? We have a whole episode called The Bouge, which is which was kind of a gigantic. It, it was like last year's biggest hit podcast and I did not expect it. But it's essentially an entire episode of um, the, the most recent trailer cliches. And with mm-hmm. booms and hits and the booze is It's like if you think of like mm-hmm. uh, Hans the Zimmer going Bwah. The Inception horn. Well, that's the bois actually. The booze oh, is the, the bass dive. The booze is boosh. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Video <laughs> game trailers are just lousy with it. I mean, I, so I wrote about video games for a long time. I worked at Kotaku and like have seen oh, so many video game trailers. And there comes this point 
if you're at E3 or something where you just can't hear another boom it's and then so, like the big yeah. the like reverse piano note into the open piano note like Ubisoft presents or whatever it's you you definitely hear all those cliches so yeah I definitely get um can hear those cliches but at the same time my entire like on, on the on the studio side we have to do a lot of that stuff um mm-hmm. because that's that's a lot of what's in demand right now but I really enjoy see, seeing trailers and stuff that kind of break that mold there is a sound effect that I'm obsessed with that I'm just going to ask you about and see if if I can describe it. I believe it's like Sound Horizons. There's this is that what it's called? No, it's Sound Ideas. There's a fireball sound and oh, it's the man. sound of kind of like that. <laughs> Did that come across? I know the sound. Where do you hear it? Where do you hear it mostly? Um, lately, the Castlevania Netflix show, that really oh. good animated Netflix show, every time something catches fire, it's that sound. It was also in, I've been kind of obsessed with it for a little while, it was in the old PC game um, Magic Carpet, when you would use an accelerate spell, it would play every single time. And I tracked it down, someone who listened to a video game podcast uh, that I used to make sent in a thing, he was also a, an audio engineer and sound designer, and he's like, oh, I know what you're oh, talking yeah. about. Now I have to like find it and find the story of, those are like the stories that I'm always looking for, it's like something yep. you would, you have heard a million times, but you would never in a million years guess, like know mm-hmm. the story behind. Right. And yeah. like who made it and how they made it. It was the kind of thing where when I was a journalist, I was like, this would be a great article that probably not that many people who read our video game website would read. But it would actually be the kind yeah. of thing I, I would I would not be surprised to hear about on 20,000 Hertz. Hi, everyone. Kirk here. As I edit this episode, I just wanted to note that the fireball sound effect comes from the Sound Ideas General 6000 series, which is a well-known series of uh, sound effects that people use, sort of stock effects. You'll hear it all over the place. It's definitely in that Castlevania show. I am still low-key obsessed with it. Okay, back to the conversation. So, all right, let's talk about 808s. You did a recent episode about the Roland 808 drum machine uh, that was really, really cool. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about that machine and about the process of making that episode? What I was so fascinated with, with the 808, because, um, I mean, I I loved hip-hop as a kid, for sure. I don't listen to it as much now. I have a huge appreciation for it. Um, But the 808 um, was a a machine, a drum machine, that completely, like, without the 808, hip-hop would not sound like it sounds now. Right. And what I Mm -hmm. find fascinating about the 808 is that this is a Japanese machine. So, like, in my mind, there must be, you know, uh, a team of these, like, in you know, Japanese engineers creating this thing. And, you know, little did they know that this was going to go across the ocean and define hip-hop, which I would even go as far as saying, like, define American music now. Yeah. And I think that's safe to say. And how did how did somebody who is so, I mean, how did, like, a team of engineers who were so disconnected, I mean, maybe these Japanese, Japanese uh, engineers were, like, totally into hip-hop, but I, I don't know. It's just, like, how does something get made by a group that probably had no, you know, bearing, you know, no understanding that was going to go on to be used by literally every hip hop artist. Oh, yeah. How could they possibly have? Yeah. And how is it so cool? Like, how do they Mm -hmm. do that? Because if you hear like, you know, an old Casio keyboard or something and put on Bossa Nova, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's Bossa Nova or not, but um, (laughs) it's just really, you know, goofy and just it's it's something there just to just to, you know, have a little beat to make something silly. But the 808 is, um, you know, genre defining. I mean, it's like the the importance of the piano to mm-hmm. hip hop. Um, mm-hmm. and so I was just f- fascinated with that, that, that machine that allowed for so many people to communicate and give cultural commentary. And it mm-hmm. all kind of like b- was because of this tool. 
And so that was really the fascinating uh, aspect of, of starting this, that, that show. Um, but, but yeah, that, that was the, that was kind of like the key aspect, like where did it come from and how in the world did it come to define the sound of hip hop? That second question is really interesting, right? Because you you talk about this on the episode, but the 808 isn't actually designed to sound like a drum set, which mm-hmm. is what I've always thought is one of the interesting things about it. You hear one and you just know that you're hearing an 808. It doesn't sound like, oh, they're doing some kind of like, you know, sequence drums. That's a drum machine. But I don't know what exactly it is. It's like, oh, no, that Tom Phil I just heard or like that cowbell sound yeah. like that is an 808. And it's so kind of distinct sounding that it's such a bank shot to assume, like no one making that could have possibly assumed, oh, this will become a phenomenon. This is going to become a defining sound in popular music. So it was all in how people used it, mm-hmm. right? That they they found these sounds and they said, yeah, well, we, we could get a real drummer. We could like get sample drums that sound like a drum set, but instead we're going to use this totally weird sounding thing that sounds really specific and kind of, it's like you're identifying what you're doing for everybody else. Like you're saying, we're using this specific thing and we want you all to know it because we wouldn't have used it if we wanted it to just blend into the background. I would even go as far as to say the kick itself is the sure. sound that defined everything. And uh, for the show, for the show, I, I talked to DJ Jazzy Jeff about it. And mm-hmm. he had said, because um, I asked him, you know, because this was before I talked to anybody from Roland. I was like, if you had one question for the Roland engineer who made this, what would it be? And he said, who had the foresight to put, I don't remember if it was a decay, decay or a release, but he was like, who in the world mm-hmm. had the foresight to put a, a decay or release or, or an envelope or something to extend that, that kick drum. Right. To make it that boom on the, like really on low that, hit. because nothing yeah. around drum machines had that sort of thing. It was a kick drum. Boom. You're done. Mm-hmm. But somebody had the wherewithal to allow for that to be extended. And, and that really like started this whole movement of, um, of that 808 sound and really like even today that 808 kick is 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 Mm -hmm. everywhere still currently yeah the super deep bass drum or like the idea of muting a drum set like i have a drum set set up in here and there's like a giant pillow in the kick drum yeah and the whole thing is kind of really controlled because i just kind of want a standard kick drum thump sound you hit it with the beater and then it just stops making sound after a little while most people kind of want that you know there are recordings where they get a kind of more doofy bass drum sound but generally speaking right kind of tight it was it is interesting that that it's almost like a mixture of bass drum and actual bass which then has become more of a thing as well where it's actually like there's not as much of a distinction between the two sounds like the the bass drum hits and decays and there's also a really big ringing low note right in that same kind of you know, area of the mix, I guess. And I know a lot of people put like a sine wave to that too, but that low end yeah. kick Boom. is, is something that is a megaphone for opinions and statements and things that, um, cause even if you're, you know, you're hearing, you're out in the, uh, everyone has experienced a time where you hear, you know, these, these big bass <laughs> sure. things. So like, it, it's, it's such a culture, it's like a tool that just completely influenced culture in such a massive way and in so many different ways. And uh, I couldn't even begin to scr- scratch the surface of how it actually impacted the world. Cause it's just impossible to go that, to that, uh, just that amount. No way. Yeah. But as far as the tool itself, it's just fascinating how one thing at the right place, right time on the other side of the ocean hit someone else at the right place in the right time on the other side of the ocean and that thing just 
just ex- exploded and everyone had to have it. You compare it to the electric guitar and sort of, you know, someone overdriving their little fender and then realizing, oh, this sounds kind of good. And then whatever, 10 years later, Jimi Hendrix <laughs> takes it and runs with it. And, you know, it becomes an entire, it, right. It's, it's influence is so broad and goes yeah. so far that you couldn't even begin to chart it at this point. It's just like synonymous with music, not even American music, but just music totally. in general. Yeah. There's a, um, when you're talking to Jazzy Jeff, childhood hero of mine, gotta, gotta say, love DJ Jazzy Jeff. I, it was very hard hard to hold it together during that. Yeah, interview. I'm sure. But I played um, it cool. He talks about, um, I, what is it? I'm the DJ, he's the rapper. Is that the? That's what we He's the about, DJ, yeah. I'm the rapper. Um, that record and how he recorded it with the decay really extended on the kick drum. Yeah. And then in mastering, the mastering engineer didn't know that that's what they were going for. And so he kind of like, you know, corrected for something that wasn't actually a problem. And to this day, he can't listen to the album because he hates how it sounds because the kick drum is kind of re-reduced to just that smaller place. It's new. It's out of the ordinary. It's rather extraordinary. So your bus's commentary, a literary genius and a superior beat creator have come together and we made a musical composition, which we think is a remedy. And that's just a great sort of, I mean, it's a bummer for him, but it's a great He anecdote. said even on just, the podcast, he was like, I have never said this publicly, but I can't right. listen to that album at all due to what the intent was. Mm-hmm. I can totally imagine. Yeah. And it's cool. You listen to it and you're like, oh, this is, this is really cool. But like, if you think about that bass drum, that was mm-hmm. happening at a time when that's just not allowed. You're not allowed to push bass that hard. And he, he mentioned this. Right. Um, it was all these these factors coming into hip hop that were like, oh no, you're not allowed to use bass. You're not allowed to push this. But you know, it, you know, bass is going to eat up all the meters. You're going to sound a little bit quieter. But blah 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 blah. And then you know, uh, we even did our own kind of recreation of what he's the DJ and yeah, the rapper yeah. would sound like if it was closer to what his his uh, vision was for that. But that's you know, it's. Um, uh, it's just interesting how we get kind of stuck in our own little. Well, that's the way totally. you're supposed to do it. Totally. I feel like that's truer. That's truer in some ways now than it ever has been. Do you get this feeling ever? I so I'm I'm like not much of a recording engineer. I, I have like a home studio. I'm most more of a musician than an engineer. And it's so easy to get into like YouTube rabbit holes on how things should be recorded. Like I've been setting yeah. up my dad's old drum set and miking it up and just recording it and learning to you know get better at playing it. But every time I look on YouTube for, you know, how to mic a snare drum or how to mic a drum set, it's it's wild to me how much information there is and how much of it is really similar. Like it's based on all of these assumptions about how a thing should be recorded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And invariably they demo the drums and it sounds perfect. You know, it always sounds amazing. Everything is just so all the drums sound perfect. But it also makes me feel like kind of restricted. I'm always like, what if I just didn't do any of this and just like mic the drums in some weird way that I thought sounded good? Or do something totally different. I, like bad yeah. guy, like I just recently, a couple days ago, I had watched a video with Phineas who does most of the music for yeah, Billie yeah, yeah. Eilish, her brother. And um, he told this great story about these, um, these uh, like crosswalk um, sounds in Australia. I think they were like or something like that. Um, and I don't remember the specific thing, but I think it was the hi-hat, um, or at least the hi-hat uh, player in this track. Right. And he had said something about he was down in Australia with his parents, you know, after kind of things were starting to take off, and his parents were like, oh, you should totally listen to this, like, cool sound coming from this yeah, yeah. this crosswalk. And he was like, it's in Bad Guy. It's like the hi-hats in Bad Like, it was literally that. Oh, it already was. Oh, yeah. that's so it was hi hat or the snare oh, or whatever. Really but cool. like he he literally sampled mm-hmm. it from that 
that thing and put it in where normally you would think, oh, that's the that's the, you know, the hi-hat patch or whatever. And so that's what I, you know, even with your first question, how you mentioned what's the most important part of recording, it's like getting out of how we're supposed to do things and performing yeah. and thinking about uh, how all of these ways that we can craft sound or find sounds. No one said a hi-hat had to be two cymbals smashed together that you hit with right. a drum or like a drumstick. No one said a snare has to be a snare drum, uh, but you can use a lot of different things uh, to do this just to make things like sonically interesting. Um, you mm-hmm. know, the, not to say that the drum set and guitars and all these things are not viable and, as musical instruments. Of course they are. But um, but in the enormity of the sonic universe, there are so many sounds that could be played with in music that could get a similar effect, but then also have this characteristic that just someone can't put their finger on, but they lean in a little bit more because of it. Yeah, it's like an intersection of music and sound design, kind of. Like mm-hmm. it's yeah. you're you're creating new sounds rather than just treating the instruments as the set thing that you're working with. The drums are great for that because they're so visual. A lot of drummers that I know, you know, like more and more people I'll see playing with some sort of tambourine, like just cymbals across the snare drum, just laid on top of it to get this kind of tambourine and snare drum sound as they hit it, or putting bells on top of the um, hi hats. A buddy of mine in town, I have these shells that I just sort of bought at a cool. We have a cool drum shop here in portland that sells a bunch of like um retro stuff and uh it's like you know the like rain shells i can go get them where are they whatever i'll leave them Um, (laughs) but they they make the like (laughs) kind of sound and he's like oh yeah those are great and also sometimes i'll just put them on my hi-hat and just leave them there and then it just adds this weird extra sound to the hi-hat he's like i like it i think it sounds good he started playing it It sounded great and i like that kind of thing just because yeah it's like you're it's a very easy instrument you're hitting a thing with a stick so you can just attach something to it and kind of make it make a slightly different sound when you hit it with a stick like it doesn't have to be just a ride cymbal a crash cymbal you know a rack top like you don't have to have those sounds which i enjoy totally yeah i want to talk about mastering some because i think all strong songs listeners like if you like strong songs you should definitely listen to the two episodes of 20,000 Hertz about the loudness wars and about mastering. Because that, to me, it's something that I don't fully, I don't, I'm not a mastering engineer. I've never really been good at mastering things. When I have to master my own recordings, it's always kind of like, I just feel like I'm sort of throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sounds okay. Um, and have worked with some good mastering engineers, like just on my music and in the past. And I'm always amazed by what they're able to do. Yeah, I think those episodes were very informative and also highlighted a trend that I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about, but maybe don't fully have all the information or language for. So it's yeah. a really they're really great episodes for starters. But could you maybe just talk a little bit about the process of making those episodes, what you learned, the loudness wars, all of yeah. that? Yeah. So mastering, going into an episode about mastering, because we initially were like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tackle mastering. It sounds like the most boring concept to try to communicate to the world, but how are we going to do it where, there, where it's actually interesting? And it became so interesting that we did two parts of it. Yeah, yeah. And the, the thing that I learned, and I didn't realize this, is that we're really coming out of a, of a, of a uh, I don't know what you, I wouldn't call it bad mastering age, but I would call it like the a dark times. deconstructive <laughs> not so great mastering age. So we're really coming out of it. So I'm telling Mm -hmm. a story about mastering as a historical problem. That's something that I thought I was going to do when when we went into it. I was like, this is a current problem that we're going to try to solve and then push people into the right direction. What I learned is that um, this is really an older problem. And now a lot of uh, companies are solving this. So what was happening back um, 
in the 80s and 90s, really when when uh, CDs came along. Because when you had records and tape and stuff, this you know you have all this headroom and you have a limit, but that limit is very wishy-washy. Like you're kind yeah. of like best guessing it because it's analog and you're like, okay, I can get this loud before I peak. And sometimes your first few peaks, you don't really hear them. You don't perceive it, but you're trying to be safe. So therefore uh, that, that, you know, magnetic tape and vinyl, um, you could have, you know, more punchiness. You could, you could have things because, you know, headroom, blah, 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 blah. But then CDs came along and that started the entire process of, of the real loudness war issues here. So if you go back pre-CDs, you can find a lot of recordings that have a lot of punch, uh, a lot of jazz recordings, a lot of, uh, sure. you know, even like Led Zeppelin, a lot of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. God, Black Sabbath, like that stuff has dynamic range. Uh, listen to the very beginning of like um, uh, the first album and it's like super quiet and then this giant guitar riff that like hits and it's like that is mm-hmm. that is dynamic range that still doesn't happen today. But it, so so what happened, you know, with CDs is now we have a finite limit. We know exactly where to cut it off before it it peaks digitally. So how do we? And, and really, if you're, you're a radio station, which you know, radio stations were all the rage. There there is proven um, it is proven that something that's slightly louder than another thing to our ears will sound better because of the way that our ears pick up sound. And so there's always this fight of like, well, let's make our song a little bit louder than the last person. And let's make this a little bit louder than the other person. But the problem is, is you lose punch and low end and all these things that eat up meters for the sake of just getting as loud as possible as a digital signal. You also get what's called like brick wall and you look at this audio and it's just a block. <clears throat> so, so, you know, kind of looking back, it's just like what in nature you know, that we've been dealing with for a million years as humans, like what in nature is a, is sounds like a brick wall, nothing. So it's not natural right. for our ears to hear like that. Yeah. Uh, our, our ears are naturally needing, um, you know, dynamic range. And it's exhausting, right? It's like you kind of get exhausted yeah. listening to, I don't know, like a hard rock album, like from the nineties, some of those albums that just really kind of, even when it's a, you know, just a guitar and a voice, it's like, it just feels tiring even it's not loud but it sounds loud that's kind of what people are hearing it's so hard to put your finger on and that's what's so Mm -hmm. difficult about mastering and 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 doing that thing to get you because the mastering engineers are not at fault here you got to remember most uh, all these master mastering engineers are you know i hate the term golden ear but if i was going to give it to somebody it's like mastering engineers kind of have that like they're really taking a, a wide range of knowledge to come to this to make each track sound um the same, you know, sound similar in the same family. You know, one one track was recorded in Santa Monica at this studio. Another right, track was right. recorded in London by a different mixer. We need all these things to sound great. Makes makes sense. But I would think most mastering engineers don't have the 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 heart. They're not going out there just trying to you know squash everything to death. That's what they're being. No. That's what they were being pushed to do. Right. So so during this time, we have a lot of these just epic albums. Californication was one of them a whole host of things there that were just squashed beyond belief. And my argument was there's a better, you, you may not know this, but some of the best songs in the entire world, there is a better version that the world has never heard because it was being pushed specifically to be louder than everyone else on the radio when we could just use our volume. One of the examples of this was there was a rock band track of a Metallica tune that sounded better than the, am I remembering this correctly? Yeah. Like in the video game? <laughs> 
<laughs> so this was great. So it was, um, which track was it? I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, but there was a uh, Metallica track that, um, it was from Death Magnetic. Maybe it was, I don't know if that's the actual song. Um, but you can hear it and it's just like distorted when you hear it straight off the CD, it's like distorted and it's just, and it's really uncharacteristic to me. It, right. it, no one on the Metallica side or their engineers or mastering engineers are really talking about it. But to me, it almost sounds like a mistake. It's so distorted. It's, it's distinct. You hear it. And of course they have distorted guitars, but like Metallica is incredibly talented and it's kind of shocking to hear their music that over smashed. Um, so, uh, so what happened was, is they, this, this album came out, but simultaneously a uh, rock band was, you know, huge and rock band came out and there was, um, they, that same track was on the rock band version and people very quickly noticed, wait a second, the rock band version of this sounds really good. And what mm-hmm. they had done is, you know, at some point during the process, they had exported all the splits for rock because rock band needs right, all these right. splits. They don't need just the stereo track. They have to be able to mute a guitar if you make a mistake. Exactly. Or, you know, they have to have individual track control. And what you get when you have when you when you have individual track control is when you're playing multiple tracks simultaneously, you start to get this analog problem again because when you start to sum sounds together, you have a more wishy washy, uh, more wishy washy uh, um, okay, top sense. end here. So you have to give it more right. headroom because if five sounds come together, it could peak and you don't have like, I mean, I, I think the game probably has a limiter built into it, but it's a little bit more challenging. So what they found is they started comparing the two and you can find this on YouTube. Like you can listen to, you know, that track, uh, you know, off of rock band and the album. And it is shocking how, how good rock bands band sounds. So that yeah, really started funny. to blow up the whole mastering idea again. It's just like, what are we doing here? This sounds better. Um, and, uh, and just to be loud and, Blah 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 blah. So it's a uh, it was a fascinating um, way that like video game like a video game started to push back on the loudness wars and people starting to started to notice. That is cool. Do you think? I feel like there are now vinyl masters. Like I'll see things described as having a vinyl master because it was mastered to work on the record. Because there's been this kind of vinyl resurgence. People are listening to records again. And so people are putting out albums being like, well, I want the best sounding version to be the record that my truest fans will pay $25 for. Do you think there's anything to that? that oh, there's a lot to that. A lot to that. So um, so we in the in the episodes, too, we we I was shocked. So there's a big re um, reemergence of remasters. And this is super important to music. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're seeing it all the time. Even in titles sometimes of the track, we'll see 2006 mm-hmm. remaster, 2016 remaster. Yeah, they'll say the year now in yeah. the title on, on streaming services. I didn't think much about it when I was when I was doing the show and we thought we heard about it until I heard a Beatles remaster. And mm-hmm. I heard, uh, we go through a handful of ones because all of these Beatles remasters, prior to this, what people were doing is they were getting the stereo uh, mix down. And then they're remastering a stereo mix down. Well, you only have so much control. But in the newer versions, I don't know if it's, I think it's mid-2010s, maybe 2016, 17 or whatever, um, the Beatles remaster went all the way back to the uh, split, the actual instruments themselves, which gave them a lot more control. And I remember, and I'm going to name drop here uh, just because I can, but I, I, I have like an email uh, back and forth with Rick Rubin uh, oftentimes. Oh, man, like, really? Not bad. So somehow I heard that he, he, he has listened to the show before. I wrote and said, hey, you know, do you, is this a thing or did someone just make this up? He wrote back and said, no, I listened to the show. It's, it's great. That rules. So I hit up Rick Rubin and I said, what's the best master remaster you've ever heard? And he was like, the White Album was insane. All of the Beatles remasters are new completely new like if you could hear the old version in which we do in the podcast 
and then hear what the, what was remastered, it sounds like it sounds like night and day. And some people would argue, well, the technology and the tinniness and the limitations of this is what also makes that music great. But when you hear, right. it sounds like somebody just recorded it in the studio, and it is gorgeous. So I actually have all of the remasters on vinyl, which you can hear on um, uh, Spotify and, and Apple and all that stuff. Another thing we learned about mastering history is that oftentimes you never get to hear the history of mastering. So you might go, oh, you know, Dallas is talking about Californication or whatever. Um, I'm going to go listen to Californication to see what he's talking about. And I can't remember if they've changed that one or not. But you go to, to um, you know, Spotify or whatever, and you don't have the old masters. They just re-upload right. the new version. So we're always yep. rewriting history on what mastering was doing. Um, some, some of those things still exist. And then there was this huge fire in Universal I believe it was Universal, that housed all these masters that a yep. lot of people don't realize that we lost the ability to do what we've done with the Beatles uh, for so many different artists. Like, like moving court, like crazy Prince. amounts, oh, like everybody. Like yeah. crazy amounts, like everybody that's great. Basically, yeah. We have lost the ability to remaster their their materials with modern technology, and it's a huge loss. Um, so yeah, um, mastering. Now the great the great news to kind of put a button on this entire thing is that the people who are solving this problem are Apple and Spotify because now their measuring techniques are different. They're measuring right. average loudness rather than peak loudness. So if you come in uh, with a track that's over compressed and mastered like it was 1992, what's going to happen is your track is going to sound quiet due to right. the way that they're doing that. And there was a big push for a while like, Apple even would give people like mastered for iTunes tags and stuff, which, hmm. which gave the whole parameter of like loosening this stuff up. So right. full circle, it came back and, and, you know, we think of, 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 you know, streaming platforms as, as doing a bunch of uh, damage and stuff. But to be honest, as far as audio fidelity, it's what's pushing a lot of this stuff forward. Yeah, that's nice. And in, in as much as there's like, you know, there, we're losing some of the history of it. We're also getting better sounding recordings now, so mm -hmm. that's, a, that's yep. a good thing. All right, I want to talk some about Hamilton. I didn't know this, but there is an episode <laughs> of 20,000 Hertz about Hamilton that's yeah. farther back in the archives than I've looked that I really want to listen to now because I gather you are also a fan of Hamilton. I'm a big fan of Hamilton. I did a big episode on the show, on the music, on Satisfied. That was the song that I focused on um, last year. My favorite song from that musical. But yeah, tell me a little bit about that episode. What was it about? What did you guys do? So I went into watching Hamilton. I have a good friend of mine that travels a lot for work, and I travel a lot mm -hmm. back when we could do that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> um, but we were in New York together and he was like, he had seen Hamilton two or three times and he was like, dude, I'm taking you to Hamilton. I was like, ugh, I'm just not into this sort of thing. <laughs> so I, you know, I wanted to go hang out and watch him. I don't know, like hang out at a bar and just hang out. And, you know, we hadn't seen each other a while. He's like, I understand that that's what you want to do. I'm going to take you to Hamilton. So I went. Good friend. Good uh, yeah. I sat down. I was just so like, I was in a, in a stuffy mood about it. And like the first few notes, it's just like, bump, 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 bump. In the first <laughs> words, I was like, okay, this is interesting. I had no, I kind of knew about it just as it being around the ether. My wife knew a lot about it. But when I saw it live, I was like, this is profound. Like, this is one of the greatest pieces of art in modern history. Mm -hmm. And um, so blew my mind. Um, I have a mutual friend. He plays, uh, he's one of the two percussionists in Hamilton. Uh, when oh, nice. We were both from the same area of Arkansas. And um, we got to meet him afterward. I got to talking to him and he started telling me, like, he didn't gave me a backstage tour of the Broadway 
stuff went under looked at the pit and then got to meet like the a2 and then the like all the audio people and then it immediately dawned on me it was like hey i have a podcast why don't i do a podcast about this <laughs> so i eventually came back a few months later uh and uh interviewed them directly um uh really learned the ins and outs of just how complicated of a show that is um namely i think uh, and there's a great adam savage tested about this that's recent um where he goes to one of the touring casts and talks to the audio person but that show um there is never unless there are two people speaking over each other there are never two microphones open simultaneously they are moving really? so, yeah they are like flying if you watch the audio person it's one mic wow. up one and then next mic up it's just like it's just like hamilton burr hamilton burr uh, you know, it's just like every single person is, just, you know, uh, Angelica, this boom. It's like they're mixing like blam, blam, blam. So blam, each person blam. is mic'd individually and they're, every, yeah. are they like riding the faders or are they muting people? Like just, they are, buttons? I believe they're shooting them up and pulling them down because there's Holy nuance to <laughs> that wow. too, because there's the other thing too, that's crazy is like, it's not like the same person plays these every time. So sure you have the motions, but different people's voices are different. And uh, yeah, when I've watched sure. it, I've seen I've seen it eight times, uh, wow. seven of which on Broadway. All seven mm-hmm. times on Broadway, I think I saw five different Hamiltons, let alone the mm-hmm. rest of the cast. Like they they change all the time because of understudies and and time off and all this stuff. So it's just a, there's not only are they one mic at a time, but they're also adjusting for the nuance of the understudy or or whatever. It's right, it's right. amazing, and they're hiding these mics uh, oftentimes in their hair. And they're poking really? down on their forehead. Oh, that's so cool. Some, I think Burr has the has the uh, jawline mic. Yeah, he does. Uh, Hamilton's from the hair. Generally, every time I've seen Hamilton, it's been Makes poking sense. out of the head. Huh. Uh, same thing with the with the uh, all the uh, females uh, with all the hair. They put it all right. in their hair and, and tap that and put that down. Um, but yeah, just it just blew me away uh, how that's working. The pit has no uh, you know can't see the actors or anything. They're right underneath them, and then there's mm-hmm. just this little opening. Uh, for the conductor who can see this right at the baseline of the stage, who can see the orchestra, see the, see that. Um, and uh, everyone in the pit even has like their own conductor monitor because they can't even see the conductor. Also the conductor is playing the entire piano book for Hamilton simultaneously to conducting, which is hard, like so hard. There's a lot of stuff in there. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, it's a no joke piano. So this is like barely touching, scratching the surface of Hamilton. There are so many, I mean, reading about the set design, I remember reading some article about the set design for that show and the way that they had sort of, everything is super standardized. All the ropes are the exact same length at every single production. There's so much work and care that's been put into what's basically a big wood room with some ropes hanging down on the sides. And, I, it tracks that the audio would need to have that level of craft put into it only because there's so much, I mean, this is true of every musical, but it's more true for Hamilton than most just because there's so many words in mm-hmm. the musical. Like there's just so much information conveyed through very quick speaking, through, you know, rapping and, and very fast sort of delivery. And also the lyrics themselves twist around on themselves so much and are so complicated that if you don't, if you can't understand what people are saying, yeah you're really going to be lost and there's so much going on that they don't want it to be like you have to have listened to it five times before you come see it to understand the story or I guess have read the biography of Alexander Hamilton. Think about like even just the the part, the key part of my shot when Hamilton is rapping, like um, it's right before he jumps off of a of a, um, a chair or something, but he's just like, um, I can't even quote it. Yeah. 
check what we got Mr. Lafayette, hard rock like Lancelot I think your pants look hot, Lawrence, I like you a lot Let's hatch a plot, blacker than the kettle calling the pot What are the odds of God to put us all in one spot? Pop in a squad and conventional wisdom like it or not A bunch of revolutionary manumission abolitionists Give me a position, show me where the ammunition is Oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. But the intelligibility that you just brought on is is so critical when, you, when you're watching it. And how you mentioned before about the difference between, between recording something and doing it live. There, that's also a distinct difference between when you hear the, sa- the soundtrack, which they recorded right as the show started to premiere. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. there's been natural evolutions in the stage show that, I mean, it's still the same, but like there's every person who plays Hamilton has their own distinct version of playing Hamilton. And that's, what's such a joy is that when you see Hamilton, it's not about seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda do it or, uh, you know, these specific people playing these characters. My favorite part of seeing Hamilton is when I see in the program and it's a different person playing a key role. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's the best part because they, they interpret it in their own way. And some have better intelligibility even than Lin-Manuel Miranda. So there's lines that I've only picked up with other people because they're enunciating it differently. Um, so, yeah, it's just incredible, like, how much information is also being in, in the rapping and the singing. It's such a dense musical. I mean, so the analyzing Satisfied freaked me out. There's stuff like the chord progression for Satisfied matches the chord progression for my shot because the two characters are mirrors of one another. There are all these like the motifs for each character are woven into everything like Angelica's motif goes through that whole piece. It goes through the whole musical. There's so many times where like Eliza's little motif pops up and if you can't hear everything really well, you're going to miss a lot of that. And it's not like that stuff doesn't come across to the average person who's just sitting down to see Hamilton for the first time. Yeah. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that's uh, Eliza's character motif that was just sort of repurposed and put into minor over there in the piano, like behind some mention of her. But it's still there. And like it's still part of the richness of the show. So you can't you can't lose it. It's like I love Disney World and Disneyland. Like I became mm-hmm. obsessed with it in my recent like more recently, like three years ago, I went for the first time. And then since then I went to Disneyland three, four times last year, three of which by myself. And it's, and it's not because of Mickey mouse or whatever. It's like, no, no. Yeah. yeah, It's like when you go there, you have a surface when you go for the first time, that's the first time experience. Then you go, then you learn a little bit, you go back, you learn the second time experience is different because you explore and you find all these new things under the surface. And the thing with like a Disney World, Disneyland situation is that there's all the you the the fascinating part about that is that it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you think you've reached the bottom, there's more thought and depth and things that you just can't. So like I haven't reached the bottom of Disneyland. That's where the crab people underneath Disneyland live who work all the machinery. (laughs) (laughs) Hamilton as a musical is that same thing. Like you start as a surface level, which is so perfect you know just sitting and watching it is such Mm -hmm. a enjoyable experience the first time you do it you get it you understand a lot of it but then you start then you start to go then you everyone goes back and they're like what was up with hamilton and burr and you do the wikipedia article and you go oh oh, okay now i get this song i get Mm -hmm. this reference oh i get this and then you go and see it a second time you're much more informed it's a new experience Uh, in the eight times i've seen it and the countless times i've heard it it's just like i keep picking up more and more depth and now you're bringing up motifs and mirroring it's just like that's Hamilton is like the Disneyland of musicals. It just keeps getting <laughs> deeper. 
It's just an exploration that I just haven't found the bottom of. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a great show. I've seen it once. I saw it in San Francisco and it was incredible. And like you, I at first I was like, ah, I'm so married to the original cast because I've heard him so many times. But then it was just so quickly taken with the new cast. Our Eliza was just amazing. And seeing Eliza in particular, I thought seeing her on stage made her role make a lot more sense to me just because she it's a very visual role and you kind of see her it's a very visual like that's the other thing too is like when you hear the music and that's the only thing you have to understand the music is brilliant but Mm -hmm. imagine if the set design and the and the the costumes were just as brilliant as the music which they are imagine the lighting just as brilliant as the music which they are imagine the choreography just as brilliant and they are and it's just like you start to add all these things and there's parts um in uh like there's a part in the in in the show it's the part where um she she holds his hand you don't see you don't hear it in the in the music right. but there's this this forgiveness part where they're like forgiveness like that whole part Like the emotional like peak of the whole show, kind of yeah. Oh my god! Like that on the soundtrack is one thing, but yeah. it does not show you what's happening. Nope. And the right. and like on stage we have we have Hamilton like silently sobbing like mm-hmm. to the max, and you can't even hear it on the soundtrack. So the, it's like that's only one of just like a thousand other moments that you don't hear the context for when you're just hearing it. And that's yeah. that that musical is just absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. I want to nerd. Out. I don't want to nerd out about forever because I want to talk about some other music. But the moment where, and when in the very the very final shot during the final duel with uh, Burr, where he shoots, and one of the chorus members is holding mm-hmm. the bullet in the air, and kind of like at least in the show that I saw, and like moving it through the air yeah. from Burr toward Hamilton as Hamilton gives his kind of like death monologue. I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. Is this where it gets me? On my feet. Several feet ahead of me. I see it coming. Do I run or fire my gun or let it be? There is no beat, no melody. Yeah. And there's just this bullet and it's like the shot. And it's it gives you a sense of, this is a thing that happens in video games all the time where you'll pause the game, but it's, it's like a slight pause and things are still moving forward in slow motion. Like it's a visual that I'm very familiar with from a lot of non-stage productions. Yeah. And seeing that and then realizing what I was seeing, it's just one of, uh, yeah, like a hundred things. And that, so that character is called the bullet, like Oh, really? behind the scenes yeah so she's oh, carrying man. that bullet through these moments and it's also the only time i believe the only time in the entire show where hamilton throws away his shot right because he's pointing at it's, the sky when this when he's yep. he's literally has a gun in his hand and the entirety of this motif of not throwing away my shot not throwing away my shot right. not throwing away my shot and then in the moment where he dies Spoiler alert <laughs> for those who have never seen his, uh, read this, uh, his, right. his, he's pointing up to the sky and he throws away his shot mm-hmm. and then he gets shot. Mm-hmm. It's wild. And he gets shot. That's how it goes. Just that whole, the entirety of this thing leads to that. And it's so, yep. uh, 
brilliant. Yeah, that's God. What a good show. I want to see it again. Oh, God, me too. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit more music. I asked you to list a few a few things you're listening to, a few albums that are that are important to you. Man, um, I just you know it's it's fun to I think ask guests that in general. One of the things you listed was the Postal Service, Such Great Heights. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's a story about that song. But what's your what's your relationship to that song? I've noticed that a lot of tracks, and, I, and I'm sure that many people can think of this, there are certain tracks in my life that bring me back to a very specific point in my life. Like, I remember exactly mm-hmm. where I was when I was listening to that track Same. over and over again. The Postal Service, I remember going, I was, I was on the 405 freeway uh, going to an early morning job at like 3 o'clock in the morning um, at like Fox. Uh, and it, and I remember that being like a whole mantra, like that death cap for cutie in general, that whole kind of world was mm-hmm. like my entire LA phase of my life. And so when I hear mm-hmm. that, I immediately go back to like the 405 now 405 and without traffic. Cause I had these, like I do, I would work from like 3am to noon. So like I was always on the 405 oh, when it was actually yeah, going. Yeah. Um, so that's really, and, and at that point too, it was, it just sounded so new and unique that it, uh, it was really at this, like the beginning phase of where like this kind of gl- like techie sounding thing was actually like really emotional for me and cool. Mm. Um, now that came after, I'll just jump right into another one because it was such a critical point in my, my life, but it yeah, reminds yeah. me of the, f- let's see, five notes and I, and five, and I've never said this publicly, um, five mm. notes completely changed the course of my life. And that was wow, the first okay. five notes of, of everything in its right place, uh, radio. Oh head. man. Mm-hmm. I remember, so I was on my entire trajectory before that was I was going to be a band director. I was a trumpet player. I was doing this glorified marching band thing in the summer called drum corps. Hey, drum corps is fine. Drum corps is cool. Yeah. So <laughs> I was, I was doing this. I was, uh, you know, very much in the band world. I, I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, be a band director, or wind conductor, or nice. um, something like that. That was really the whole thing. Shortly after that, I started dealing with performance anxiety that that really cut that entire part of my life off. Mm. But I remember exactly where I was when. I, when someone, I think they had like a Walkman CD player or something at the time. And they were like on the bus, you know, to the next thing, just listen to this. And they're really adamant about it. And, uh, and I listened to it. And I remember those first, those first five notes. And I was like, this is something I've never heard before. Like I go from this wind <laughs> thing, symphonies, jazz, of course, rock, right. like my, as a kid, I was listening to like Metallica and stuff like that. But that was like an electronic sound that, complete from that point was a point in my life where I turned toward where I, where I landed now. But without that Man. moment, I don't know if it would have been so clear because it just completely opened up a new part of my brain. That's so cool. I had a similar experience out of music school where, I mean, I'm still a jazz musician, but I was so into jazz. And so, you know, I was a jazz saxophone performance major and was like all about just chops and technique and harmony and like learning giant steps in all 12 keys and whatever. Yeah. And 
I just didn't have a lot of time for a lot of rock music and for a lot of just non-jazz music. I was like, well, are they are these musicians the best musicians in the world? Because if they aren't, eh, I don't know, what am I, I don't have time for this. And then there was this just sort of period in which I realized, I think it was actually the Mars Volta. It was like Deloused in the Comatorium. Do you know that album? I don't. Oh man, you dig it. It's a it's a great record. And uh, I the first time I heard it, I was like, I don't like this. It's pretty hard. It's pretty weird. <laughs> Um, it's uh, those guys from At the Drive-In, like formed the Mars Volta. It's, it's like an experimental freak rock band or something. And it took a while of like, I just kind of stayed at it. Like I had to work at the album, yeah. and I was like, I'm gonna keep listening because I know this is good, and people that I like trust tell me this is good. And I just kept listening to it over and over and over again. And eventually, like maybe the third time through, I just kept hearing new things and became just fascinated with different parts of it, and it really just started to click. And then I just from there sort of, you know, at the same time was listening to a lot of different things. But that's a funny story. I wonder how common that story is of just I don't know. We're similar backgrounds because I was a trumpet player. Yeah, that was my right, life being in that band world and playing jazz. And I still listen to tons of jazz jazz now. Um, I've always been a big jazz fan. A lot of, uh, one thing that I did realize though, is that I, I spent so much of my young life focused on performing to the point where I think I started to lose perspective on the emotion of a lot of these uh, symphonies and, and Mm. pieces. Because I remember when I, when the performance anxiety bout happened, I was in a concert and I totally bombed a solo. It like a complete like wash of cold sweats happened. In a, in a concert. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that was the moment where it all stopped. Like, from that point on, I, every time I kept thinking about that thing. Um, but so so I kind of finished school. I switched my major over to, like, music media to kind of get myself. Uh, I stopped, stopped enjoying performing. And I remember there was, like, a time of, like, five years. That's when I moved out to L.A. And, you know, this is where I'm, like, hearing Postal Service and stuff like this. Sure. And there was a time where it took me, like, five-plus years to come back to the symphony orchestra and to jazz and to understand it for, for the first time. Like, like I spent so much of my life, like 15 years all studying this, but I never got high level enough to like, I was analyzing it, which is different than listening to it and experiencing it and hearing it. And it took me until I was late twenties to really start to hear and listen and experience without thinking about, for example, you know, it's like coming, coming from a wind band world. It's like, I'll practice to to get a symphony thing. You'll practice an excerpt from a symphony, and it should be like, da 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 da. da. You know, you just practice that. Mm-hmm. So it's like the way I would listen before is like, okay, symphony, 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 symphony. Okay, let me hear this trumpet player do Where's this. Where's my lick. part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it took me like five years to erase that out of my brain, and then now I'm not sure. listening for trumpet. I don't care about the trumpet. I care about like the the the, the full magnitude mm-hmm. of what's being spoken in this piece. Yeah, yeah. And that's a profound moment, being able to switch that. Just getting performer hat off and experience mode is a is profound i'm completely with you on that and it's making strong songs has partly been an exercise in that and in trying to reinforce my own practice of doing that because yeah for a long time it was very much like what is the musical information that i can glean from this you know if it's a solo i'm transcribing if it's someone i'm listening to how can i learn to do what they're doing and it was very practical you know taking it apart for pieces and trying to 
figure out what I can use from it instead of just listening to it and sitting there and being and like, you, well, you and I have a unique perspective here because we both have a very similar background. It's actually shockingly mm-hmm. similar for what we're both doing right now. Yeah. So you and I had this analytical thing throughout probably most of our like teens and twenties where we're analyzing, analyzing, analyzing. And then our, you know, whereas most of our peers, all the f- friends and stuff who are not in that world are enjoying and experiencing and enjoying and, ex- and experiencing. Mm-hmm. So you and I kind of come get older and we go, we finally discover the enjoyment and the listening aspect of it. And then what we can offer to all the people who have already been doing this their whole life is the analyzation of this, like why this is so brilliant. Um, And that's what's so powerful, like a show like yours or like what I'm doing is that we kind of take those things that we got beaten into us early on. And (laughs) now we're able to kind of share those as the most interesting nuggets. I agree with that. It's nice. It's a nice thing to turn around. I always say the best, that was the best thing I got out of my musical education. Like as much as it was cool learning to play a bunch of licks and stuff, the most valuable thing was the ability to listen to music very, very deeply and to hear everything. Cause that's the thing, no matter what I did with my life, you know, when I was a file clerk straight out of school to pay the bills or when I was writing about video games for a living and I'd think, man, I really should be making music right now. It didn't, it was always fine because the music was always still there. Every time I heard music, that experience, yeah. like that part of my mind was still hearing it. And then it was just, yeah, kind of a long process of learning how to listen. So I want one last thing I want to ask you about is you mentioned that you've been listening to some older stuff on vinyl lately. Yeah. And uh, going back and listening to like Kind of Blue, some Elton John, the Beatles. And I've been doing that as well. I think we're not alone in that. I know there's been kind of a vinyl resurgence. I get asked about it a lot. Um, just sort of, why do you like listening to things on vinyl? What do you recommend? And I'm curious your answer to that question. Why do you like listening to old records on vinyl? Well, another thing, one of my favorite episodes, um, if we, if we, we've only replayed an episode one time because it was so, it was so important to me, but there's another one that I would say that if we do another repeat, uh, or replay it or repackage it, it's this one from very early on called from, from, uh, analog to digital. And it was this whole story. It was, it was one of like the first 10 episodes and it was really about, um, you know, w- the argument of what's better analog or digital. But the right. but I never liked the argument. I always thought that that was a beside the point type of argument as far as mm-hmm. what sounds good. Because the reality is is that digital music sounds incredible. CDs sound incredible. Vinyl sounds incredible. Cassette tapes, the uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they sound interesting. Sound, you know, cassette tapes have sounds with them. Yeah, they they make sounds. <laughs> So, so many people have talked about vinyl, and my my whole thing, and th- this is again a, a new recent development. I've been a sound designer my entire adult life, um, and um, I, I just I always had that curiosity: why are people so into this sort of thing? But the first thing is, is that uh, it was there's a, there's it's always a kind of a difficult barrier barrier to entry, especially when we don't we're not used to paying for anything when we come to consuming music now. So even right. buying headphones seems like a big investment when it comes to consuming mm-hmm. music, let alone a record, like a, a turntable, which you can get a great one for 150 bucks, a couple hundred bucks, something like that. Um, so I have mine, I have like a little U-turn uh, table that's like so perfect for nowadays. I've heard other people that love different things, but I have that kind of going right into a Sonos system, which blasts, which I can play that anywhere in my house. So it's like, I wanted it to be right. really accessible. Uh, 
full disclosure, U-Turn and Sonos uh, <laughs> so, uh, are advertisers <laughs> on the podcast, both of which I set all this stuff up before they, right, ad- they were right. advertisers. And not advertisers on this podcast. So that's just the way that I do it. And a lot of people would argue like, what? You're, you're streaming it through like Sonos or whatever. But it's not about that. Like what I learned mm-hmm. in the process of that episode that we did is that it's not about what sounds good or bad. It's the approach that you take to music when you have a physical thing. So when we have a little, you know, whenever I have Spotify just up on my computer and I'm listening while I'm working and stuff, if I don't like something in three seconds, I just click the next button. Everyone does. Yep. But that's Mm -hmm. not the way music was ever supposed to be uh, consumed. Or, you know, I hear of a new artist or something and I go and I just listen to like their top five tracks. Those top five tracks were never programmed to be like that in in their album. Like their album was, was thought about. In, in detail, how where we start, where we go, how we, you know, tell a whole story. And so with vinyl, um, you can't just skip around. And so it, you, when you get a, a record and this image evokes a sort of emotion, you pull it out of its sleeve. First of all, old records that are all scratchy sound terrible. New records that are new presses that don't have any of these scratches on it sound incredible. They definitely do. So you pull this thing out, you know, you sit and you go, oh, you know, you're prepping your body and your mind to listen. You know that once you put this thing down, you're going to put the needle down and you're going to walk away and you're going to listen to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's a preparation for enjoying music that's different. Like I have a ton of albums uh, that I listen, I listen to it on. If I'm just like, oh, I don't want to go put the record on, but I want to listen to Punch Brothers or something, I'll pop it on same speakers and I'll just hit it straight from Spotify. But if I want to like sit and cook or experience or have people coming over, I want to go, I want to pull it out of the sleeve and I want to do the whole ritual of putting it on there, putting the needle down, closing the the lid and just walking away and letting it do its thing. And if I hear a skip or a scratch, it just reminds me that it's real music, like right there coming from that piece of uh, vinyl. And so it's much more about the thing that I like is the, the preparation of your mind with with that it's not about what sounds better or worse in my opinion i i think that it's just a it's just a a pointless argument for me it's much more about the the seriousness at which you're going to listen to an entire album i totally agree so that's i have a very similar take that it's the inconvenience of it that makes it special yes even having to get up and flip the record over when i have guests over i sort of like that it gives you like a natural conversation break the music stops for a minute then you realize there's no music on you get up to flip it i like all of that you talk about the music yeah man if you have have you know if i have kind of blue on and if you mm-hmm. spent 20 bucks for a for a vinyl record like there's a lot of stories behind it and why you got that i've heard it sure 10,000 times off of spotify but i bought it mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's it's and it's different there's i mean there's little cool things with records too you'll just notice things if if it's a recreation of the original like that that look nice or do kind of cool things even the way that I think it's uh, Sergeant Pepper's. If you is it the B, the second side of Sergeant Pepper's? If it just starts spinning at the end, it loops something. This might just be that my record player was broken, oh, yeah. but it started looping the final notes of the final song in a really cool way. And I have to go try to recreate it to see if it's actually a thing. I have but to there's go check just that things out. like that that uh, that are super interesting. Kirk here. As I'm editing the show again, I just wanted to to update this and say that this is a thing. Um, Apparently, this is a known thing with Sgt. Pepper's. Um, I have a reissue, but it's a really nice vinyl reissue of it, and it does do something cool at the very end. If you just let the the needle kind of keep going and let the record keep spinning, it makes a sound like this. That jingling sound is my dog, Appa, noticing this sound as I had my record player uh, play it, and she's not really a fan. 
<laughs> so anyway, that is definitely a thing. I'm at the end of a day in the life. Maybe something we will talk about at a future date on this very podcast. Okay, back to the conversation. I remember once... Man, where was this? This was in San Francisco. And a guy, a guy had like an acoustically tuned listening room with a reel-to-reel tape deck and the whole thing. And he put on, oh, it was Bill Evans, I think, and it was like an original, you know, tape. And it sounded incredible. I mean, it did sound better than anything I've ever heard. But so much of it was still what you're talking about. Like, it was still the intention of the listening experience. It was that we were all sitting in a room that didn't have a TV or anything else in it. The whole purpose of the room was to make albums sound good. And so because all of that was there, that was just as important as the fact that, yeah, I mean, the speakers he was using were like, whatever, $10,000 speakers. It was this incredible, beautiful amp and everything sounded good. But but that was that was only half of the equation, and and the more important part maybe to me is exactly what you're talking. And that's about. Exa- so. I had that exact same experience. I even as a sound designer and an audio person myself, like I would never spend that much money on on something. Oh yeah, no, same. <laughs> but I do have a friend who you know once he kind of knew that I was doing the vinyl thing, he brought me in for a reel to reel thing with these fancy speakers and stuff, and it was an, yep. a, a great experience. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's so much about an approach and you know the mechanics of it and just using your hands to get it going and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's a tactile thing that, that I think just opens up your mind in a different way. Like when I'm listening to kind of blue on the record versus when I'm listening to it on Spotify, my mind is prepared in a different way. Now I'm not mm-hmm. recommending everyone go out and start buying vinyl records. That's up to you. Um, right. <laughs> and if it's up to, if it's your life experience, maybe if you live, you travel, you know, you've traveled a ton and you're never at home and whatever, it's, it's not convenient. But, um, but I think that the point being is that. What if we tried to start, we have the ability to approach music in the same way on our phones. We can do this. It's just extraordinarily difficult due to the way that phones work and how convenient everything is because it doesn't want to bother you ever. Like it it wants to go, oh, you want something? Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, here's 15 more recommendations. Yo, you want to do it? Yeah. Click on that. That's totally cool. Remove all the friction from this, this whole thing. Records do not do that. No. They go, if you want to hear that, you can hear this or you got to, you got to spend, you know, five, 10 minutes pulling this off, putting it back in the, finding something else. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's like once you, once you commit, you commit. Yeah. It's good practice for like living a more frictional life, I guess. Yes. Um, It can get you in that, in that headspace. Well, cool, man. Um, Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, Yeah, this was fun. uh, I think we can wrap it up, but yeah, this was a, this was a great time and listeners should go listen to 20,000 Hertz, but I'll put in a whole plug after this so they can know all about where to find you and, and where to check yourself out. But Dallas, thank you so much for coming on Strong Song. Thanks for having me. So thanks again to Dallas for coming on the show. And really, I just, I can't urge you enough to go listen to 20,000 Hertz. You will love it. If you like this show, you'll definitely like it. I've actually listened to that Hamilton episode now by the time I finished editing this episode. And it's super cool. Actually, a fascinating um, counterpart to the episode that I did because it's all about the audio design. But as we talked about just in this conversation you just listened to, it really dovetails with the music and makes the whole show work. You can find 20,000 Hertz at 20k.org. Thank you so much one more time to all the patrons of Strong Songs. You are making it possible for me to do things like this. I had a great time making this episode, but it did take a lot of time, and I can dedicate more time to Strong Songs thanks to your support. If you would like to become a patron of Strong Songs, you can find out how to do that at patreon.com strongsongs. And yeah, thanks everyone for listening. I've got a couple more bonus episodes like this in the works and also a couple more Patreon goals. If we get to certain patron numbers, I'll make even more. So look forward to that. And in the meantime, I'll be back next week with yet another strong song.